Good morning. In Luke uh, chapter 11 here, we're on the heels of uh, Jesus having taught us about prayer in uh, verses 1 through 13, and then uh, uh, took a little break from last week and uh, the Easter Sunday. So we're back in Luke here in verse 14 in a familiar situation where Jesus is casting out a demon. Now, casting out demons is not necessarily the, the theme of the passage. The theme of the, of the passage, if you're going to teach it, if you're going to discuss it, is about the authority of Jesus. Uh, Jesus' authority. It's come under question, which is just very strange for people to put Jesus' authority under question in light of all that He's done, then and now. And so, as Jesus is casting out a demon, it's almost become mundane at this point for to see Him casting out a demon. Uh, it's not something that we, we see people doing today or we talk about doing. You know, the other day I was casting out a demon and then I had to go home and take a shower. My wife and I went out to dinner. You know, it's not part of our conversation. If it was, you know, how would people respond to such? It's strange. It's weird. You know, when people think that you believe in this stuff, that, that that's, just, that's just otherworldly. And it is. Even my own dad uh, struggled with it. Uh, he's passed away a few years ago, but... Uh, and he, he would ask me, do you believe that? that well, yeah, Dad, I believe it. You don't? He never said he didn't, but I could tell that he was skeptical. Demons, devils, yeah. Uh, it, it's odd and strange, is it not? Is it not? <laughs> and yet we see them all the time. It's odd and strange in the West. But if you ever get a chance to talk to someone from Africa from Nigeria, from Kenya, uh, missionaries who have been out in the field, it's quite common. And to not talk about it is strange. These beings, demons, are fallen angels. We learn that from the Bible. Uh, Revelation 12 tells us in no uncertain terms that in Satan's rebellion, who was the, the chief angel, an archangel in heaven when God created the angels, he didn't create demons or a devil. God created all uh, the, the angels different than man. They're not made in God's image. They are created beings. And one of them decided that he wanted what God had. And he could not get it from God Obviously, God is much stronger than he. But when God delegated his authority to mankind, who was there? He was there. He knew right where to be, and he always does, doesn't he? He was right there in the garden. Of course, there's no one else to hang around with in those days, just Adam and Eve, two people to hang with, that God has just delegated his authority to. Couldn't get it from God, but he got it from those that God delegated it to. Pretty easily, actually, like taking candy from a baby. And everything changed. From there on, this being, Satan means the accuser. Uh, he is the devil. He is the serpent. He has ruled the world. God handed that authority to man. Man gave it to the devil. Did God take it back? God remains sovereign over his world. But he warned mankind that this would happen. Don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Man ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He became aware of good and evil. And his life has never been the same. And we are the offspring of those two people. We know all about it ourselves. And so this being became strong and powerful to the point where Paul the apostle said that he is the lowercase g, God of this world. 
Paul also calls him in, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, the prince of the power of the air. In the dimension that we cannot see, the prince of the power of the air. Jesus himself, in John 12, 31, calls Satan the ruler of this world. The ruler of this world. We see throughout, if we were to do a study of the devil, which is not quite the most uplifting thing to do, but it's helpful in our understanding of what's going on. We see that if you were to read the the book of Job, for instance, that the devil himself has access to God. Speaks to God. God almost taunts him. He has to have permission from God to do what he desires to do, especially in the case of Job. He needed permission to do anything to Job. We see him later on. Jesus is speaking in Luke chapter... In Luke. (laughs) It eludes me now. It'll come later on. He asked, where Jesus is speaking to Peter, and he said, Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. He's asked, he's had to ask. The you there is plural, not just Peter. He wants all the apostles. But he has to ask permission. So again, in our study, in our quick study this morning of Satan, we see that this is a being that's subservient to God, and yet God allows him to rule this world, but we might say under the thumb of God. God meeting out his wrath upon sinful mankind through this being and his demonic horde. You see, the angels that God created, it wasn't just one that rebelled, an entire third of them. We don't know how many there are, but however many there are, an entire third went with Satan, this accuser. He is the accuser of the brethren. That's what he did with Job. He stood before God and accused Job. My assumption is that he does the same thing to all of God's people in God's presence. Throw that thing in front of Lance, God, and see what happens to him. It's what he did with Job, isn't it? Take his health away, God. Take his family away, and he will curse you to your face. And Job never did, so Satan doesn't know, but he knows people well enough. He knows that when he shakes our lives up a bit, we tend to shake our fist at God. But we can learn from Job that when we're going through miserable circumstances, it's because God has permitted it. For his glory and for our good. We don't like that though. Lord, I prefer to not go through that for my own good. Yes, but when we live a life of no problems whatsoever, that doesn't help us. We come to believe we have no need for God. We don't need to pray. Everything's good. How you doing? Everything's great. Fantastic. Tell me how your prayer life is. Uh, It stinks. Dude, follow that up with somebody who says, my life is fantastic, never been better. Ask him right then, How's your prayer life? It's going to stink. But when things are at their worst, we're struggling, we don't understand, that's usually when our prayer lives are the best. Amen? It is for me. And the opposite is true as well when things are good. I got this, God. It's all good now. Here's Jesus casting out a demon because God has allowed Satan and his demonic horde to taunt to oppress and even possess people. It's so common in the New Testament, in the Gospels. Um, We read over it, and we live in the day where we don't talk about it. In the New Testament, it's there. It's all over the world today. I think what Satan does in the United States of America is cloak this kind of thing. And yet, 
you may or may not know this, but when you turn on the radio and you listen to, uh, not that you do or that you would, but if you listen to somebody like uh, Katy Perry, Jay-Z, Beyonce, or if you like the darker music like Black Sabbath, all kinds of musicians, Eminem, if you like rap, these just representative, these people by their own admission, I'm not making this up, by their own admission in interviews, say things like Katy Perry saying, I sold my soul to the devil to get lyrics for songs. Jay-Z and Beyonce speak of the spirit that they consult to help them write their music. Black Sabbath, whom I know no good fine Christian listens to except me, sadly, (laughs) headed up by Ozzy Osbourne. How many times do you hear the word Ozzy Osbourne in church? It's a four-man group. They've been around since the late 60s and 70s, and they write dark rock and roll music, and they have a fifth member of the band that they like to consult, and that's the devil himself, whom they say, at least their bass player, Geezer Butler, says we consult him and he writes the lyrics to our songs. Of course, listen to the lyrics, and that makes perfect sense. It's in the music we listen to. It's in the government in which we're under. If you don't see that, you are blind. It's on TV. It's at your next-door neighbor's house. It's everywhere he wants to be. And don't you know that Satan loves the fact that we go around saying, I don't believe that stuff. So it's there. Jesus had no issue with it. He just casts him out with a word. And that's what we see him doing in verse 14. He was casting out a demon. And it was mute. Now when you're mute, uh, the King James Version is, uh, what we used to call this, is dumb. You were dumb. Uh, It's not politically correct today to call someone deaf and dumb. They're deaf and mute. And though it doesn't say they're deaf here, muteness usually follows on the heels of being deaf. Matthew's parallel account, the person is not just uh, mute and deaf or just mute, but they're also blind. Uh, Some have said, well, that's a different account, and this is another account, and that might be. But let's assume that it's the same account. This person is a modern Helen Keller, blind, deaf, and mute. This person is in bad shape. And Jesus was casting out a demon, and it was mute. When the demon had gone out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds were amazed. There's no embellishment in this. I love the fact the Bible doesn't embellish these amazing stories. You scratch your head and you say, wait a minute. What? A man that was blind and mute or here just mute, probably deaf as well. The demon comes out and clearly the demon was the cause of the muteness. This man that couldn't talk, probably couldn't hear, and if it's the same guy in Matthew 12, couldn't see, is now Jumping around, I, I doesn't say that, but I'd be jumping around, painful or not. I mean, what do you do? Oh, check that out. I can talk. How about that? Do you think it would be like that? This guy says, hey, I, I have a voice. Probably starts screaming. Probably scratch his voice. It's just, it's not quite there, but he can make a sound and he can hear himself. Now, if you're in the crowd that day, you are, as the crowd was, Amazed. Because that is an amazing thing. Not just that Jesus cast out a demon, but that the man who was oppressed by the demon was now speaking. Jesus. Power of God at work, right there for all to see. People are amazed. A little sub point here is that um, some 
ailments that human beings, we as human beings endure, are the result of demonic oppression, clearly. We see that in another context. We saw it previously in uh, Luke's gospel in chapter 5 where there was a, a man who was paralyzed. And Jesus forgave his sins. And once his sins were forgiven, he could walk. So his sins caused his paralysis. It doesn't mean that every time someone's blind or mute, deaf and mute, or has some issue, it doesn't mean that there's demons, but it could be. In this case, it was. Because when the demon was gone, the man spoke. So the demon rendered him mute. And the crowds were amazed, as you and I would have been. You know, if, if you will, turn over to, to the right side of your Bible, to one of the small epistles there at the end in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. It's right after 2 Peter. Peter, Peter, uh, John, 1 John. Hebrews, James, Peter, Peter, and John, 1 John chapter 3. It's a good passage to know, especially in light of all the, the exorcisms that Jesus performs in the New Testament, in the Gospels. 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 8. I'll begin in verse 7, where John writes this. This is the Apostle John, the same one who wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. He's also the author of the book of Revelation. He says in 1 John 3, 7, little children, speaking to his audience. They're not children. It's not a children's church. He's just speaking of his own people, of God's people, as little children. Make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he, that is Christ, is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. Note this, the Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. Why did the Son of God appear? To destroy the works of the devil, as he just did in Luke eleven, um, fourteen. Continue on with me. I'm going to read through verse 10. John says, no one who is born of God practices sin or continues in sin. We all sin, but our lives, if we come to know Christ, we don't continue in the same sins. We sin less and less. And even though we sin less and less as Christians, we feel what we do is sinful more and more. No one who is born of God practices sin or continues in sin because his seed, that is God's seed, abides in him. And he cannot continue to sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. What? There's two kinds of people in this world. There's the children of God and the children of the devil. How do we know which is which? Well, let's finish reading verse 10. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. The one who does not love his brother is not speaking necessarily, per se, of his, of his uh, blood brother, but his brother in Christ, his fellow neighbor, his fellow human being. The one pra not practicing righteousness striving to be righteous as they've been made righteous in Christ is not of God. And if you're not of God, you are of the devil, even though you may look just like everyone else. So if Jesus' point was to come along and destroy the works of the devil, he's having no issue with it, verse 14, back in Luke eleven fourteen. Demons go around oppressing people, possessing and oppressing. Jesus comes around and frees them from such. He has the authority and the power to do so. Crowds were amazed. But among those who were amazed in the crowd, verse 15, some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, or some translations, Beelzebub, 
the difference in the spelling comes just from various translations as it goes through Syriac and Latin and comes that Beelzebul, Beel, uh, the word Beelzebul and Beelzebub uh, comes from Baal, B-A-A-L or B-E-E-L, try to say that one, B-E-E-L, <laughs> uh, it speaks of the, the old, uh, the God of thunder, the God of lightning that pagans worshipped, specifically in Philistine, in the, in the Philistine regions. Um, Beelzebub uh, means flies, so it would be Lord of the Flies. You're all thinking about the book you read in the eighth grade, Lord of the Flies. What do flies hang around? They like dead things. They like filthy things. They breed their maggots in that they are calling Jesus Lord of the Flies, the worst, most filthy possible name you can give. The lowest of the low. Let's take a look at this Beelzebub character. If you would, turn back to your left with me. I'm in 2 Kings. It's in the first, oh, about the first quarter of your Bible, first third. 2 Kings. You're singing your song, right? To get to 2 Kings. How many of you memorize this song? You memorize the books of the Bible through singing a silly song. Good. Just don't sing it out loud, okay? No, do. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, that's where we are. 2 Kings chapter 1. Beelzebub, called Beelzebul there in Luke's gospel. We get to read something about this particular made-up pagan god. He is particularly, this particular pagan god is big in the town of Ekron, one of the five cities of the Philistines, Ekron. We meet this King Ahaziah, by the way, he is the son of um, Ahab and his lovely wife Jezebel, so we can't expect a whole lot from this guy. He is the king of the divided kingdom of Israel in the north. In the south, there's Judah. The kings of Judah are in the south. They stay on the right path. At least they worship in the right place, Jerusalem. The kings of the north have gone the way of Satan, and this is one of their kings. 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 2. Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber, which was in Samaria. That's where he reigned. And he became ill. So he falls through this, this lattice. He probably got cut up so bad and, and an infection set in. He became ill. So he sent messengers and said to them, Go inquire of Beelzebub. The God of Ekron, the, the Lord of the Flies. The God of Ekron, that is that one of those five cities of, of the Philistines. And consult and ask him whether I will recover from this sickness. Now, if that story is being shown on a movie, that, that little scene goes out. Ahaziah from his deathbed sends out his messengers, go consult Beelzebub and find out if I'm going to recover. The next scene goes over to this ugly, hairy-looking guy named Elijah. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, who was obviously still around in those days, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say to them, Is it because there's no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, You shall not come down from the bed where you have gone up, but you shall surely die. Then Elijah departed. That's an encouraging message you got. This is what prophets have to do. It's what preachers have to do sometimes. Go tell him this. Hey, guys, you know, this, is what, this is what Elijah no doubt did. Hey, guys, I know you're going up to consult Beelzebub, and, you know, my heart goes out to you. Isn't it a beautiful day? God loves you. 
He loves you. He's got a plan for your life. I, like, I hate to tell you this. And, I, you know, I like to be nice and all, and, and I don't want to discourage you or anything, but here's what God told me. He doesn't do that. And I don't like preachers that do. We preach the Word of God the way the Word of God is. It doesn't make for a lot of friends. I don't have a lot of friends as a result. And we will never have a large church as a result because God's Word is pointed. These messengers are just simply following the law of what their king said to do. Elijah meets them and he tells them, you go tell your king this. You shall not come down from the bed where you have gone up, but you shall surely die. Now just giving a king bad news can purchase your own death, by the way. But he departed. That's all he said, and he leaves. When the messengers returned to him, that is to Ahaziah, he said to them, why have you returned? Apparently Ahaziah thought, you're going to be, need to be gone a few more days to get to Ekron, consult the god of Beelzebub, and come back and tell me, what are you doing back so soon? They said to him in verse 6, a man came up to meet us, and he said to us, go, return to the king who sent you to him who sent you, and say to him, thus says the Lord. That would be, thus says Yahweh. You were looking for the Lord of the flies. Yahweh met us along the way. And he asks this very sarcastic question. Is it because there's no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed where you have gone up, but shall surely die. Now my guess is at this point they took off running. No, they didn't, because they have to interact with Ahaziah. Ahaziah said... What kind of man was he who came up to meet you and spoke these words to you? They said to him, he was a hairy man with a leather girdle bound around his loins. He wore a leather belt. He wore a a garment of leather skins, and he had a leather belt around his waist, and he had a lot of hair. That's what prophets looked like then. And this was the distinguishing characteristic of Elijah. His successor was Elisha. And what did he get made fun of? He was bald. But don't make fun of Elisha's baldness. Just just in case you ever encounter him in heaven. Don't mention it. Because the boys that made fun of his baldness got mauled by bears that day. Just, just so you know. Another story altogether. Elijah was hairy. Elisha wasn't. But when they described him, Ahaziah knew exactly who they're saying. It is Elijah the Tishbite. Then the king said, sent to him a captain of 50. So he's going to send up, he's going to destroy Elijah. Sent to him a captain of 50 with his 50, 50 men. And he went up and he said, he went up to him, that is to Elijah. And behold, he was sitting on the top of the hill. And he said to him, O man of God, the king says, come down. Elijah replied to the captain of the 50, if I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then fire came down from his heaven and consumed him and his 50. Have you ever prayed for that to be true for you? I mean, wouldn't that be awesome? Everyone would be dead, though. That's the problem. (laughs) Bring it. So 50 guys and their leader dead. Verse 11, so he again, that's Ahaziah, sent to him, that's Elijah, another captain of 50 with his 50, and he said to him, O man of God, thus says the king, come down quickly. Elijah replied to him, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Fire came from God, came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. So he again sent the captain of the third, of a third 50 with his 50. When the third captain of 50 went up, he came and bowed down to his, on his knees before Elijah and begged him and said, Please, O man of God, let my life and the lives of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. 
Behold, fire first came, fire came down from heaven and consumed the first two captains of fifty with their fifties. And now let my life be precious in your sight. The angel of the Lord said to Elijah, go down with him. Do not be afraid. So he arose and went down with him to the king. So now Elijah is standing before King Ahaziah on his deathbed. And he said to him in verse 16, thus says Yahweh, because you have sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron, is it because there is no God in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed from where you have gone up, but you shall surely die. Well, we're all going to die. But verse 17 says, and so Ahaziah died, according to the word of the Lord, which Elijah had spoken. So with that in mind, consulting Beelzebub or Beelzebul is a dangerous thing. Certainly comparing someone who's casting out demons with Beelzebub is quite the insult. So let me just ask you a question. With what we know, what we've read in Luke's first 11, 11 chapters of his gospel, is Jesus casting out demons by Beelzebub? He's still alive, isn't he? He didn't die like Ahaziah. What about the people whom he's freed from their demons? They're all free from it. Immediately release this guy right here. Mute demon. Now the man can speak. And if he was also blind, he can see and speak. See, speak, and hear. So while some are amazed, some are said he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Look down at verse 18. If Satan is divided against himself, so they're calling him Satan. Beelzebul is another word here for Satan, the devil himself. So to give credit to what Jesus is doing to Satan, wouldn't you say that's the lowest of the low of an insult? Really? I assume by your silence, yeah, that's easy, Lance. This is what some are doing. We believe that what you just did, you're doing by the power of the devil. And he's the ruler of the demons. Verse 16, others, however, to test him, were demanding of him a sign from heaven. Now, that's just the most absurd passage in all of Scripture. Give us a sign. Really? A sign? What other sign do you need? Jesus in John's gospel, in John chapter 6, John chapter 6 opens up with Jesus feeding 5,000, which we assume is uh, doubled, tripled, maybe quadrupled. But let's just say it's just 5,000 people, 5,000 men. Feeds them with a couple of fish, a couple of loaves of bread. They're all fed, miraculous. And there's 12 baskets of leftovers. That's more than they had when they started. That's a miracle. Jesus begins to talk to them after this in John chapter 6. And they say, we want a sign from heaven. You want a sign from heaven? You heard that old joke about the guy who's stuck on his roof? The, the flood waters are coming up. And he says, Lord, come save me. Guy in a boat comes by. Hey, hop in. No, God's going to save me. Later on, another guy in a boat, he's now up in the top of his chimney. Another boat comes along, and, and then later a helicopter comes on. He tells him the same answer. No, I'm waiting for God to come save me. Guy drowns, goes to heaven, and God says, he says, what's the deal, God? He said, look, I sent you two boats and a helicopter. What are you waiting for? We see things that God has done, and we, Lord, we need to see a sign. I, it drives me insane for people to say, you talk to a skeptic, and they say, do you believe in God? No, I don't believe in God. I need evidence. Your very presence here is evidence. 
Look around. How did all of this come to be? Buildings don't just build themselves. There's a builder. The world and and everything in it didn't just get here. That is absurd. Not scientific. Everything that is has a maker. But not everything. Everything within it, atheists say, but not it. I need evidence. Evidence, do you? You need a brain. And, and really, you could say, well, they just need the Holy Spirit. No, yeah, they do need that. But it doesn't take the Holy Spirit to know there is a God. You don't have to be enlightened with God's Spirit to know there is a God. Romans 1 proves that anyway. Everyone, you know by the creation there is a God. But those who choose not to believe in that God have done what Romans 1 says. What? They have exchanged the truth for a lie. Here's the truth. We know this to be true. We want the lie. So others are demanding signs. By the way, in, in the weeks to come, Jesus deals with the signs. And he, uh, over beginning in verse 29, I'll get to that in the future. But uh, for now, just know that there are some saying, ah, he does what he does by the power of the devil. Others, eh, we're not impressed. We need some signs. A sign from heaven. You know, is it okay to ask for a sign from heaven? I don't think it's such a bad thing. Lord, help me. I don't know what to do. I've got two choices, three choices. I don't know what to do. And I can't find a passage in the Bible that tells me what to do. That's a little bit different. Praying that God would show you. Lord, will you show me? Will you make it obvious? I've got this house we love and this house we love. And we don't, it's kind of mundane, but I don't know which one to buy. Which one would you like me in? Well, maybe you pray and God allows one to, to fall through. Okay, that's the one you want me in. Or this job and that job. This one falls through and, and that one comes through. Could be. Thank you, Lord, for showing me. Um, th- I don't think those are bad prayers to pray. In fact, I think we should pray that way. But to pray demanding a sign from God so that you can believe more from God, that's the sin. And that's what they're doing here. And apparently these people are not saying these things out loud. Apparently they're not going, by Beelzebub, you do this. By, the, by Satan, you're doing this. Or I need a sign. No one's saying it out loud. Because it says in verse 17, Jesus knew their thoughts. We're a hush murmur through, throughout. He's, you know how he does this, right? He does this by the power of Satan. Yeah, that's all right, but I need more signs. Jesus knows what they're thinking. How can he know thoughts? Well, he's God. And he said to them, any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. And a house divided against itself falls. So a kingdom and a house. A kingdom divided against itself, if it's run by one ruler and another ruler who's supposed to be subservient to the other ruler is working against the first ruler, maybe it's a king and a prince. Maybe they're working against each other. Is that kingdom going to last? No. I mean, if the prince of the kingdom is working against dad as the king and he's selling secrets to the kingdom and, and telling the enemy where the, the, uh, the, the, um, the weaknesses are in the fort... Well, then that kingdom's going to fall because it's divided. Same in a house. A husband and a wife who are at odds, or a husband and a wife who might be on one side who are allowing children to rule in their home, which we see all the time. It's a house divided. We don't need a whole lot of explanation on that. We know that anything divided against itself falls. And so Jesus says, if Satan, which is Beelzebul here, 
If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebub. So it's as if to say, if, if Satan himself has oppressed a human being, perhaps possessed a person, then it is Satan, this is how Satan gains dominion. This is how he tries to get his power, power over God's people. You have people, you have all the power. I'm going to put myself or my own demonic horde in this person. I'll own this person. They will do what I tell them to do, or they won't say a word because I'll render their tongues mute. That's Satan. If Jesus comes along and says, by Satan's own power, leave that man, then Satan's divided against himself, is he not? That's what Jesus is saying. Why would Satan do that? If Satan, you want power over this person, and you allow me by your power to cast out that person, or that demon out of that person, how's that a good thing? Satan might be a wicked and evil being, and of course he is, but he's not an idiot. He wouldn't do that. Why give Jesus, whom he knows is the Son of God, power to cast out demons? He's the one that tempted him over the course of 40 days. He knows who Jesus is. And so Jesus says, if Satan is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And if I, cast, and if I by Beelzebub cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? So there are Jewish exorcists in the day, in that day, mostly from the Pharisees, at least as I read in historical accounts, are that the Pharisees, this conservative group, went around and some of them made a lot of money casting out demons, quote unquote. Probably a lot like the way people are today, sit there and yell at people whom they think are, are possessed by demons, yelling and screaming. Jesus never had to do that. Be gone. Get out. They leave. Um, today, you know, it's a big, huge thing you put it on video and make movies about it yell and scream in the name of jesus and this name and that name satan doesn't come out he goes back in people twirl around their head spins on their bodies they are elevated you know it makes for good i guess i've never seen it but it apparently it makes for good cinema probably somewhat true so they were going around apparently casting out demons let's get a let's get a glimpse of what some of their exorcisms looked like. I'm going to go to Acts 19. I know I got you moving around today, but that's all right. There's more than one book of the Bible. I'm in Acts 19. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Acts. The book of Acts, chapter 19. This book of Acts occurs after the gospel of Luke. In, not only in your Bibles, but in history. And so we meet these Jewish exorcists. Paul is in the, the city of Ephesus in Asia Minor, modern Turkey. And uh, Acts 19.3, Luke is the writer of Acts. He says this, Acts 19.13. But also some of the Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had evil spirits. So they're going place to place, they're Jews, and as exorcists, they are touting themselves as those who cast out demons, going from place to place. Attempted, in this particular case, attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits, that's demons, and they attempted to do so in the name of the Lord Jesus. So an exorcist is going to take whatever name he or she can find that trumps the demon. 
So by this time, they have some background that the name of Jesus Christ has some power over demons, and so they invoke Jesus' name. They invoke the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, here's they are, there are these Jewish exorcists, and they go out, and they're a plural, plural group of them, and they say this, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Not the Christ, not the one who was dead and was resurrected, but this guy that Paul the apostle preaches. Seven sons of one Sceva, who was a Jewish chief priest. We don't know these people elsewhere. They were the ones doing this. And this is one of the funniest passages in all Scripture. You have to read it if you haven't read it before. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, just one evil spirit coming from one man to these seven sons, answered and said to them, excuse me, I recognize Jesus and I know about Paul, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and subdued all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded, decided to rip their clothing off, humiliate them, wounded, bleeding. So this is some of the practices of the Jewish exorcists of the day. No doubt some might have been had some sort of a, of a successful exorcism from their, in their own minds. Hey, yeah, I feel better now. None of them, however, compare to the exorcis, exorcisms Jesus has performed. So Jesus says, if I by Beelzebul, verse 19, cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? Your sons are out there, you Jews. And by the way, Matthew's gospel says that the people that are talking to Jesus here are the scribes and Pharisees. Luke doesn't mention that. Matthew's parallel account said it's the scribes and Pharisees. So he's saying, you Pharisees, your sons, they're the ones out casting demons. If I'm doing it by the power of Beelzebul, and he's saying, and I'm very successful, they leave immediately and the people are never the same again. By whom are your sons doing this by? How are they able to do what they're doing? Now you think, were they doing it? Were they actually successful? When he says, so they will be your judges, he's essentially saying, go accuse them of the same thing and let them judge you in return. See what you get from your own sons. But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. That phrase, finger of God, I love that phrase. You read about it in Exodus chapter 8, verse 19. It's in the context of the exodus, of the pl- right before the exodus, the plagues of Israel. Remember, Moses turned the water to blood. The Nile River went to blood. Well, the, the, the magicians in Pharaoh's court came and probably took a little pool of water, threw some red dye, and said, look, we can do the same thing. Moses' heart, or uh, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Uh, later on, they, uh, Moses' power of God brought frogs on the land. Somehow or another, those magicians were able to produce frogs. Look over here, Pharaoh. There's some frogs coming out here. We did that. Pharaoh's heart was hardened. But when God cast gnats all over the land, all through the air, probably darkness over the land with the gnats, the magicians told Pharaoh, we can't do this. This must be what? The finger of God. Later on in Exodus 31, verse 18, um, we hear of the finger of God that wrote out the commandments of God, written by the finger of God, repeated in Deuteronomy 9.10. 
the finger of God. If I cast out demons by the finger of God, and if I do, if that's what's happening, if these demons are leaving because I'm doing it by God's power, then God's kingdom has come upon you. You say, wait a minute, if those pharisaical exorcists were also casting out demons, wasn't the kingdom of God upon them then? We don't even assume that that was happening at all. Probably like people are today, invoking whatever name they can to get some result and then going around telling everybody they cast out demons. Acts 19 is a good example. Those guys may have gone away and said, yeah, we cast out that demon. Look at us. What happened to your clothes? Why are you bleeding? Well, we cast out a demon. Well, no, he beat you. But there was evidence that something happened. And so Jesus is saying the kingdom of God, the power of God is not just in casting out a demon, but no one else can do it except Christ because his power is greater than that of the devil. His authority is greater than that of the devil. God gave it to man, man gave it to Satan, and Jesus came to rescue us from the works of Satan. 1 John 3, 8, remember? And now we see it demonstrated here. The finger of God has come upon you. The kingdom of God. The kingdom of God came when Jesus came to this earth. You say, well, this stinks. This doesn't feel like a very good kingdom. Well, we're not living in the kingdom era. But our king did come to this earth and introduced the kingdom to us. And he left. He ascended into heaven and he said, I'm coming back. And we know that when he gets back, according to Revelation 19, he brings the kingdom with him. And so we have the promise of the kingdom, the kingdom of God dwelling within us. I mean, God lives in me. The Spirit of God lives in you if you are a Christian. If you have received Jesus as your God and Savior, you are sealed and indwelt by the Spirit of God. Yes, the Spirit of God lives in us. And when we gather together, it's a bunch of people with the Spirit of God coming together, talking about the kingdom of God. So in a sense, there's a sense in which the kingdom of God is here. But it's not coming its fullest. That's why we say, thy kingdom come. We pray it, Lord, send your kingdom. Then he gives another example in verse 21. He says, when a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house, his possessions are undisturbed. Okay, just think of you. Strong man, maybe you're not strong, but you've got a lot of weaponry your house. The doors are locked. You got your schlag lock. I just like to say the word schlag. Schlag lock. You've got your deadbolt lined up on your door. You got your dogs outside, your pit bulls. You're locked and loaded inside. No one's going to mess with your house, especially if you live in Texas. Only a fool would do that. You got to be a fool to break into a house in Texas anyway. So just picture that, a strong man. Now this verse 21 is depicting Satan. He's the strong man, fully armed, Guarding his house. What's Satan's house? His people. He's guarding his people. That's why when you do evangelism, when you preach God's word, there's so much demonic influence. There's a war going on out there against us. That's why we get depressed. That's why we get upset. We get bitter. We, get, we struggle with life. All we're trying to do is preach the gospel and we just want Jesus to come. And we get the garbage that we get in return. That's the spiritual battle that we, fi- we fight, that we face and that we fight. He is attacking us because we are attacking his people. 
There could be times when you are talking to someone and you're trying to share the gospel with them and they get outright, downright furious at you. There's danger in evangelism. This one's mind, Satan is saying, don't come near, don't touch. That's why you need to bathe your evangelism in prayer. Bathe the preaching of the gospel in prayer. You never know what's going to happen. Who knows what's coming through these doors? Who knows what people are here? The old joke at Harvest Bible Church is, oh, Lance will scare them off. They're here now, but Lance will scare them off. Now, what does that mean? It means that the preaching of God's Word will scare off anyone who is not in Christ. Wolves don't like sheep food. They like sheep. And so the preaching of God's Word is what runs them off. They might come in and meet some nice people and and enjoy the music and enjoy the air condition and just, hey, this is close to home, blah, blah, blah. But when the Word is taught, that's when the rubber meets the road. And Lance will chase them off. It's not Lance. I'm not trying to chase anyone off. I am simply tasked with preaching the Word of God. With my cantankerous personality, which doesn't always help. And and I say that in jest, but I I mean it in reality. And I have been, I think, um, justifiably so in recent days, um, reminded again that my tone uh, can overwhelm the love of God. And again, it's justified. It's a justified critique from someone that I believe loved me. They're not here anymore. But it was, hey, Lance, you're a great teacher, but I don't know how good a pastor you are. I said, well, tell me why. He said, because I don't hear God's love in your tone. Okay. That's fair. I've heard it before. I am direct. And it's strange to hear because my heart's filled with nothing but the love of Christ, and I want nothing but the salvation of the lost and the growth of God's people. But... I just happen to have that, I don't know if it's a sin or if it's just, I don't know if it's a gift. Maybe it's just me. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. But my tone can hurt feelings for sure, even when I'm doing my best. Thank you for your grace. Many of you, I do. I thank you for your grace. Um, It's hard to to fire back and say, no, I love them. I love them. Because a, a loving tone is sometimes needed, and I don't always have that. But it's there nonetheless. Um, I was telling my wife last night, she made beans, and I said, she said, how were they? I said, well, some of them were crunchy. <laughs> and I said, just like me. And she said, oh, no, honey, you're not crunchy at all. No. She said, yep, <laughs> crunchy beans for a crunchy guy. hurt my feelings. <laughs> Satan is this strong man, fully armed, this crunchy guy. He owns people. He's guarding his people. He's a strong man, fully armed, guards his own house. His possessions are undisturbed. But, verse 22 is Jesus, but when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all his armor on which he had relied and distributes his plunder. (laughs) Don't you love that? But it's not just Jesus. It's Jesus in us. We have the power to give the gospel of Jesus to an unbeliever who's owned by Satan and the power of the gospel to overcome the power of lies. It's a beautiful thing when you see it happen. 
distributes his plunder. Distributes the plunder of Satan. You had this one, you had that one, you had all those, and the gospel went out, and all of them are now out there preaching the gospel. The plunder that we took through evangelism is now making itself available with the gospel. And then Jesus ends with this passage, at least he'll end for for our purposes today. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Folks, that right there could be the most frightening passage any of you ever read, any of us ever read. Because you have to ask yourself, am I with Jesus? He who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. If you're not with Jesus gathering, you might not be out there literally scattering, but by not being with Jesus to gather, you are out there scattering. If you are not with Jesus in the sense of he is my God, he is my Lord, whatever he says is what I do, then you are just as bad, in fact worse than an outward worshiper of the devil himself. There's no middle ground with God. There's no Christians, atheists, and God-haters, and, you know, Jesus is just all right. You remember that song? Jesus is just all right. He's a pretty cool guy. We like him. You know, people give it the little point up there. You know, the man upstairs. He ain't upstairs. He's right here. So what about you? Are you with Jesus? Because if you're not with him, maybe you're one of those people with one foot in and one foot out. You're in church once a month, twice a month maybe. You don't give anything, none of your money, and you never will. You don't give any of your time, and you never will. Because you don't recognize that God gave you that time gave you those gifts to serve, that he gave you all of your money. You and God have a deal going on. Like a friend of mine told me one time, me and Jesus, we got a deal going. I said, really, tell me about that deal. I grew up with him. I've known him since the third grade. Tell me about the deal you and I have. Here's the deal that he has. He doesn't bother me. I don't bother him. He goes to church. The ark I thought, your church must stink if that's what you actually think you can get away with. That your pastor doesn't tell you this passage. There's no deals cut with God. God cut the deal with us. Receive my son and be saved or die in your sins and burn for eternity. There's no negotiating that. There's nothing in the middle. Why would you want to negotiate it? It's a get-out-of-jail-free card. Free for us, not free for God. He paid the price. In chapter 10, Luke's gospel, verses uh, 10 to 16, Jesus speaks of the town of Capernaum, the town of Tyre and Sidon, Sodom and Gomorrah, and of, of Chorazin and Bethsaida. Jesus went and preached in Capernaum and Chorazin and Bethsaida. They were all around the Sea of Galilee. And he performed miraculous signs there. Most of his miracles were done in these areas of Capernaum. And he tells the people, because they really enjoyed being healed by him, 
They really enjoyed watching him perform miracles. But he tells them, if the works I did in your towns had been done in Sodom and Gomorrah, the the people of those perverted, depraved cities, they would have repented. Jesus knows that. He knows that if the works I did then or now in those cities, if they would have seen it, Jesus knows they would have repented. In dust and ashes, which means down at the lowest of low, of Lord, have mercy on us. But he's saying, you people of Capernaum, Bethsaida, and Chorazin, you've seen my works. You have seen what they didn't see. If they'd have seen it, they'd have repented. You've seen it, and you're not repenting. And he tells them in that passage, in Luke 10, 10 through 16, those people in Sodom and Gomorrah will fare better than you in Capernaum. And the people of Capernaum were not against Jesus. They liked him. They didn't take him seriously. We love his works. And when grandma gets sick, we just take him over to Jesus and he heals her. That's fantastic. He's kind of our genie. But that is not why Jesus came. He didn't came to be a good guy. He came to this earth for us to receive him and bow to him. He came to the earth to say, if you are not with me, you are against me. If you are not here to gather with me, then you are not remaining neutral. You are actually scattering. You don't have to be out there attacking the, the, uh, uh, the inerrancy of Scripture, the deity of Christ. You don't have to be out there attacking that which is sacred in the Trinity. All you have to do is do nothing with it. Give nothing. Serve Never attend whenever you feel like it. Don't offer your bodies up as a living sacrifice, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Do whatever you want to do whenever you want to do it. Because you know, God, that man upstairs, him, hit home run. Thank you, Lord, for the home run. Him, he's cool with you. Jesus is just all right. He ain't. He's not all right. Jesus is your greatest enemy. Far worse than Satan could ever be on his worst day. Jesus is your enemy until you receive him. He has stretched out his arms and saying, I will receive you just as you are. Come as you are. Believe in me and you shall be saved. Do nothing with me or reject me outright. And you will die. But your death will not be quick and simple. You will die over the course of eternity. Think about that. While a segment of the population who received Christ is living over the course of eternity in life, a larger segment of the human population is living out the course of their existence in death. Eternal death. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 calls it eternal destruction. We think of something being destroyed and it's done. No, this destruction is eternal. There's two kinds of kingdoms. Colossians 1.13 says there's the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. There's not the kingdom of dim. There's not the kingdom of, of one click of your lamp. It's either dark or it's light. Receive the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Let me tell you how much I love you. I know it's 1130, 1129. 
If I go to 11.35, it means I don't love you. I could sum up, I'm tired, I want you to know. Forget me, I, I mean nothing, I mean nothing. I will die and your lives will go on fine. I mean nothing, but the love of God means everything. So forget who I am, what I say, how I do. Don't forget what I say, because what I say is that you are sinners. We are all sinners. We were born that way, under the domination and control of Satan himself. We are enemies with God. We're born enemies of God. The wrath of God is upon us. Cheryl and I were just hearing the other day is that some churches will not sing in Christ alone anymore. The wrath of God was satisfied. They won't sing that because they don't like wrath. And they won't sing amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. No, they're not wretches. There's certain verses of joy to the world that churches will not sing. They don't know they're under God's wrath. They don't think they're bad people. We are born enemies of God and the wrath of God is upon us. And here's the greatest news you'll ever hear. The wrath of God was satisfied on his son. Not so everyone will be saved, but so that everyone who believes in him will be saved. I love you so much as to tell you that. That God loves you enough to offer you salvation by trusting in his son Jesus Christ. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And you will know who you are. Not because you are neutral, but because you ask God what Isaiah said. Lord, here I am, send me. What do you want me to do? I want you to gather with me, Lance. I'm in. I want you to be with me, Lance. I'm in. What your word says, I'm in. Are you? He who does not gather with him scatters. You are one with one who worships the devil. Let's pray. Lord, let no one leave here today without acknowledging who they are in Christ. Convict those who are not in Christ at all. Convict those who give nothing, who offer nothing, who attend rarely, who think the church is just some entertainment venue to show up at, drop their kids off, come sit for an hour and go home. It's not. It's a dying world out there. Lord, equip us for the work of ministry, through the preaching of your word. Get us out there. May we speak, may we live to your glory. May no one who knows our names ever accuse us of anything but being with you. No neutrality. That they would never ask, well, I don't know if they're a Christian. No, they say our name and they know exactly who we are. And it's not because of a bumper sticker or a fish on the back of our car. It's by how we live by what we say. It's by what we don't say. It's by the love of Christ flowing through us. In his name we pray. Amen. Now may God bless you as you go show the love of Christ to this dying world. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas. 